Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 186 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung, coming to you from Austin, Texas. And I've got an important episode for you today. For those of you who listened to episode 182, where I talked about running and racism, this is a continuation of that conversation. And I'm bringing on one of our Rogue community members, Dion Schaffner, who has been a Rogue member for more than a decade now and who is now running with and supporting the virtual She Squad group that is gearing up for a half marathon in the fall. Fingers crossed. She is supporting that group as one of the the inspiring women that Ruth and Jen are talking to as a part of that program. She is a longtime community member, a marathoner, and a five-time Ironman finisher. And she's got a lot more inspiring in her background, which we'll get to in a second. But I'm bringing her on the show to talk about being an ally in this very, very important conversation about race that we're having right now. And before I turn to that conversation with Dion, I wanted to just say a few things. First, I wanted to unequivocally state and affirm that I believe that Black Lives Matter And those three words are important right now to speak and affirm. And I understand that silence on this topic is is dangerous. And so I just wanted to make sure that everybody knew where I stood. And we'll talk more with Dion about what those three words mean and how to put action behind those words. And we're going to be spending this conversation, stepping away from our normal conversations about running to talk about being an ally in the Black Lives Matter movement. And some people may be frustrated with me by that, and they may be thinking, well, Chris, you should stick to talking about running. You're a running coach, but but I'm not going to do that today. And if you're frustrated by that, then I would encourage you to listen anyway, because I think the messages that Dion discusses are really, really important for everyone to hear, and I think it's important for all of us, given what's happening in our world right now, to take a pause, maybe on some other conversations, and elevate this very, very important conversation to ensure that everyone in life has the same rights and opportunities. And right now, we're lifting up and affirming the black community because they need it, because they're hurting, and because for too long... We have not in this country. And so for those that say I shouldn't be talking about this, I say I absolutely actually should be talking about this, not because I am perfect or not because I'm doing it from a pulpit and because I have it all figured out, but actually because I don't have it all figured out and I'm really working hard to try to understand and be helpful. And it is my duty as someone with a platform like this to elevate the, the words and voices of others like Dion, like Alex in episode 182, so that others can understand. So that's what I'm doing with this conversation. I also wanted to, as a part of that, really my second message here is to apologize for not standing up in a bigger way on this topic sooner. I recognize that that's that's on me and that I shouldn't have taken so long, taken so many tragic deaths to have to step up and be an ally in this conversation. And so I'm sorry that it has taken me time to get here. 
but I can say unequivocally that I am here now and I promise to to not only speak the words but also to put those words into action as an ally and that's again part of why I want to have this conversation today the third thing I wanted to say is that there's no finger pointing here this is a judgment free zone I recognize that some of the conversation topics that we'll talk about with Dion are difficult and that might bring up some uncomfortable truths and uncomfortable realizations about yourself, but I'm here to say I'm not perfect either. I'm also dealing with some of these uncomfortable truths, and so I'm not preaching by having these conversations. I am trying to learn and understand, and I do not pass judgment on those who are also trying to learn and understand and who may realize some uncomfortable things about themselves as a part of the process. And that's okay. And then lastly, and Dion does this well as we wrap the episode, I just wanted to encourage everybody to really take this episode as a call to action to be an ally. We're going to talk about not only the framework for thinking about that, but also ways that you can take steps to be an ally in this in this conversation with Dion. And I just want to encourage you to be committed going into the conversation that you're going to learn. You're going to take away a few things that you might be able to do yourself and then put that to work. Dion gave me a good analogy for this actually outside of our conversation where she talked about it just like training for a marathon where when you first start out, you have this big goal, especially if you're doing your first marathon, you have this big goal in front of you that might seem intimidating. It might seem overwhelming. And this in parallel, this issue, this topic of racism that that has so many elements to it and is so deeply rooted in our country is also a big, tough obstacle to be looking at and thinking about just like a marathon is. And just like with a marathon training, you start by doing small runs, small workouts, take baby steps that eventually lead to bigger runs, longer, long runs, and so forth. As you build that path to completing the race, the same is true in this conversation around racism. Whatever you can do to start small, start with small steps, not only looking inward, but also thinking about the small actions you can take to be an ally that will lead to bigger steps that will ultimately lead you to doing even more on this very, very important issue. And hopefully for some of you listening to this conversation is one of those first small steps that will lead to bigger steps. That is certainly my hope. So with that as some context and as an intro, I want to stop there and begin the conversation with Dion. So here we go. Let's welcome Dion Schaffner to the show. Welcome, Dion Schaffner, to the Running Rogue podcast. How are you doing today, Dion? I'm doing okay. Thank you. And I'm happy to be here. Well, we're happy to have you. Thanks for joining us in this conversation. We started, I started this conversation on the podcast a few episodes ago in episode 182 on running and racism, where I talked to one of our coaches in Dallas, Alex, about how the running community could better be aware and also to better support and be inclusive of the black community in in our running world since then the conversation has become even much broader and so we thought i thought it important we thought it important to really take that conversation a step further to this conversation about how to be an ally to the black community during this time and so i want to thank you 
for joining us and helping us talk through it as a black female. But I want to start by going back in time, get a little bit of your history even before running. I know you started in in dance and cheerleading as an athlete, but want to even go back before that. Where did you grow up? What were you like as a kid? Give us, give us a little bit on the little the young Dion. <laughs> Yeah, sure. Well, I, um, I'm an Air Force brat. So, you know, when people are like, where are you from? There's always this pause and followed by, well, because it requires some sort of explanation. It's like, where was I born? Where did I spend formative years? Those all things kind of, uh, you know, roll into that. But I was actually born overseas um, outside of London, England, um, when my dad was stationed on an Air Force base there, spent several years there, came to Austin moved to Japan, came back to Austin, moved to California, Minnesota, back to Austin. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I have this sort of boomerang thing going on that uh, Austin keeps calling me back here. So I I keep coming back. But um, it's, uh, you, you know, when you first start having your memories of sort of growing up and being around people, I think that's kind of where you feel like, well, this is kind of the place where I grew up. And a lot of those memories started in Japan. Those were, and I sort of remember, you know, friendships and activities and things that I did um, there. And if you talk to other military brats, um, especially those who are overseas, it's really interesting because when you are stationed overseas, the differences amongst uh, the groups of people are more, uh, you know, cultural, nationality-based, like you're American or not. Like, those are the distinctions. So it was kind of interesting. Like, when I first started growing up, my distinction was I'm an American. I'm not Japanese or I'm not, you know, English, those those kinds of things. Um, so it's um, just this whole sort of notion of groups and, um, you know, just the whole racism sort of things. It's it's a very interesting perspective when you come to the realization, sometimes maybe later in life that like, oh my gosh, this is the group I actually belong to. But um, anyway, so that's, we'll probably get to that later. But yeah, I started in Japan. I've always been um, involved in some sort of physical activity. Uh, My mom had always claimed because I was sort of long and lanky and gangly that I needed that to sort of make sure I, you know, could walk gracefully. Um, but I always sort of took to physical activity, um, just for the enjoyment of it. I enjoy performing, you know, I, I love being on stages. I love, um, friendly competition. I love challenging my body and see what it can do. And so physical activity has always been some, uh, part of my life. I started in dance, like we mentioned before, cheerleading. I was a gymnast for a while. Um, and then got to running later in life when, you know, some of those other things aren't, uh, available. You know, it's hard to be a pro cheerleader when you are pregnant, like that just doesn't work out so well. So you have to choose a different sport. And so, um, things like that is how I sort of slid my way into running and triathlon. What was it like being an American in Japan? What do you remember about that experience? Because to me, and I've never actually traveled to Japan. I've traveled to China, other parts of Asia, but I've never been to Japan. And that just seems to me, it's a place I want to go because it seems like it's so different from living in the U.S. So what was that like as a kid? It was, it was, now, and so remember, since I started there, this was kind of all I knew. So it was, they, their 
it's very steeped in culture and, um, uh, you know, sort of respect for each other, for the generations, for their land. Um, it was, it was a wonderful experience. And, and when, when you're in, in the military brat and you go to school, you're, you are moving around every two to three years. So you, and you know what that feels like to be the new person in the room all the time. So you are more open and accepting to hearing new voices, learning about new culture, because you're doing it all the time. And you're always the new person in the room. So when you're in a class and somebody new comes in, they're looking around, you're like, hey, come sit by me. Because in six months, that could be you walking into somebody else's, you know, classroom. But um, my my sister and I growing up there, we had such a great time. Uh, the, the base there did a really good job of embracing the Japanese culture. In our elementary school class, we had a class that was Japanese culture. We learned how to use chopsticks. We learned how to write kanji. We learned how to uh, you know, speak Japanese. We learned their cultures. We would do these um, extensive field trips where we would go basically do an exchange weekend with a Japanese school or family. And we would go to their school for a day, you know, and they would come to our school for a day. It was just this, everybody was very open to learning about each other and, um, you know, sort of just embracing all the coolness of the different cultures. It was really fascinating. I, my sister and I, we both talked, um, about we're going to take our kids back there now that we're adults. And I'm sure our perspective now will be different than, you know, when we were kids there, but we have uh, great fond memories of just um, lots of great activities and uh, beautiful uh, landscape. You know, my elementary team, we were, we were about an hour away from Mount Fuji. We had a ski team. We had an elementary ski team. We were the Mount Fuji elementary, Dakota West skiers and every Saturday we got on the bus and drove up and skied Mount Fuji for the day and came home it was awesome you know I was like doesn't every school do this like this <laughs> seems totally normal to me um but it was an amazing experience I am so grateful for having had it yeah my wife lived in Singapore and Malaysia and she has some similar experiences where she said yeah we'd go on a field trip to australia <laughs> so, yeah. what like you could just do that so how but how were you received by the local community there that, as an american or as a black american um i think from my perspective now you know i you know looking i, I may have to go, like go back and sort of like dissect some of the things but at the time i felt more just an American. Like I wouldn't have even labeled myself black American. It was just, we're all the Americans over here. Here's all the Japanese over here. Like that was the distinction. That was it. There was no other sort of micro level underneath that. And, you know, I don't know if it's because, you know, we had good relations from the base, the Air Force base there, whatever, but we were always, you know, or maybe it was just the particular situations I was in. We were always, you know, very welcomed and I think part of it is because we embraced the learning of the culture that we were there. We weren't there to try to sort of Americanize, you know, the, the Japanese who were there, we were there to learn more about them. And I think anytime you approach a group, you know, with an open heart and an open mind, you are going to be well-received, you know, and if you're coming there to be like, tell me about this, you know, how to do this tea ceremony, or, you know, tell me more about this. And when you, when you approach that way, 
people are sort of open and welcome to have you. So, and how old are you in that window of time? I was seven through 11. Okay. And so then you moved to Austin, you said, next? Yes. And then I moved to Austin. I came here and started, I was in the sixth grade when I started. And so when did you first become aware of racism as you know it now? Yeah, I would probably say, you know, starting around maybe middle school, really. I wouldn't even say sixth grade because I was still sort of just, you know, re-entering American space. Um, but uh, it was probably really sixth grade. Actually, there was one incident. So before we moved to Japan, we were here in Austin when I was three to six. And we lived out in Oak Hill, the Y in Oak Hill, where, you know, there was hardly anything there. That whole development that's in the middle of the Y, that used to be where we rode our bikes over hills and in the grass and all that kind of stuff. Mm. That's blown up completely. But I do remember. And so I was born in England, moved to Austin. So little black girl in Oak Hill, Austin, speaking with an English accent. So mm. I, the one memory I have of when I was really little being here the first time was being in a store, holding my mom's hand. She had asked me something. I responded. And this, this white woman looked down at me, just a sweet face. And she was like, honey, where are you from? Like she couldn't put the pieces together hmm. to figure it out. They're like, what is this black little girl doing here with a British accent? Like what? Like <laughs> it just blew her mind, you know? And I was like, well, what do you mean? This seems totally normal. normal, right? You know, this is just who I am. Um, so that was probably like my early, early one, but I think it was really like middle school um, when, you know, really started to sort of notice some things and it, it not necessarily you know, negative things at that time. Um, but just, you know, somebody coming up to me and be like, Hey, why aren't you running track? I'm like, what do you mean? Why? I don't know. I've never run before. Well, you know, well, all the black girls run track. You should be running track. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. <laughs> you know, I didn't realize that was the thing I was supposed to be doing, you know? And so I'm, you know, right. I'm going over there. Um, so, you know, just some of those things are, you know, kind of my earliest memories of, you know, not necessarily, you know, racism outright, but more stereotypes. And, you know, anybody who knows me, I'm, I pretty much am the antithesis of any sort of stereotype someone tries to, you know, think about when they're like, you know, there's hardly any black women in computer science. Like, you know, in my Stanford class, we probably had five, five of us, you know, that was it. Um, And you certainly don't have you know, uh, management consultants who work for Deloitte consulting also being an NBA cheerleader at night. Like that just doesn't happen. Like it's not the same person, but, um, you know, so I've, I guess in my person, I've always sort of been a, a, a instance of, I don't really, I don't really fit in most people's expectations of, you know, what my labels are. And, you know, I think that's something that's, really interesting as we start to sort of discuss, um, you know, race and expectations and things like that. It's like, you have to let go of some of the definitions you have been taught and really look past that and, you know, look at individuals for who they are. Might surprise you. I I didn't know that we had Deloitte Consulting in common. 
But oh, I, was also, yeah. I also worked at Deloitte for three years as a business analyst after college. Excellent. I was in the uh, Minneapolis office. Okay. I was in <laughs> Houston, as I guess you might expect. But um, so then how did it progress from there? So you have people making subtle assumptions about you at that age in middle school of who you, know, who you are, what you should do. How did your experience progress from there or, or evolve or change at all? Yeah. So I would say, you know, as I continued on, um, you know, there were things like I played the violin, which, you know, isn't typical, you know, and you'd find people you're like, how are you first year, first violin? I'm like, I don't know. I just enjoyed playing. So hmm. here I am. Like, why shouldn't I be here? Um, or um, let's see what some other things like you know, being in again, like, you know, being in computer science classes or just, you know, I would get from people while wow, you are, um, you know, you're eloquent, you speak very well. I'm like, well, I started with the Queens English and <laughs> Texas, you know, so I'm somewhere in the, in between of those things, but sometimes it's people trying to give a compliment, but it's actually because they're basing it on something that they understood, all black people don't speak well. So, you know, you, you what's, what's different here? You know, there's a difference. Right. And then we pointed out like, wow, you, which I mean, in my head starts to sound like, wow, you speak really well for a black person. I'm like, well, well what is that supposed to mean? You know, right. so there's these like little things that I think as you go through your life, you don't, you know, you, I've just sort of, you kind of take it, it gives you a moment of pause, but you take it in stride and you keep moving. But it's like, you know, the pebbles in the water, they start to build up over time, you know, until you realize like there's this big stack and you're like, whoa, wait a minute. Like maybe I need to look at this collection and figure out what's going on here and, and, and why, you know. I can tell you that as a white man, I've never had anyone tell me that I'm articulate. <laughs> right. That, exactly. That's never a word that's used there. It's always, you know, she's very well-spoken. She's articulate, you know, which is, feels code for, as a black person who speaks well. And right. you're like, yeah. And why, you know, so it, when you make that kind of statement, you're making a kind of a judgment, which means you had some expectation. And how did you get the expectation? Yeah, those are the subtle things. In, in in some ways, I think those are, I mean, obviously, overt, in-your-face racism is terrible. But I think the subtle things like you're talking about can be sometimes even more dangerous because they can slide by without people being aware of them or without the light getting shine on, on it because, well, you weren't hurt in that moment, right? right. At least uh, overtly, but it's that subtle kind of dig that accumulates over time that's just got to be grinding and eventually just beats you down. Yeah, it's it's like if you're holding, you know, you're holding some weight and every time somebody comes by and they just put like, you know, one little pebble in, one little pebble in, and you know, you kind of get stronger because you the weight is gradually, you know, increasing, but you're you've been standing there holding the basket the whole time anyway, so you're just getting stronger, but you don't realize how much you're holding until you have the opportunity to put the whole thing down. And then you're like, wow, that was a lot. Right. <laughs> you don't even realize how it's built up over the time until you sort of stop and look at it and put it down. And you're like, wow, 
that is actually a lot right there. My goodness. Yeah, I was reading a statement by Crystal Dunn, who is, for those that watch soccer, she's the starting left back for the U.S. Women's National Team, black female athlete, who was one of the top defenders at the World Cup last year. And and she talked about the subtle awareness for others and announcers, people that talk about soccer, how that she always gets talked about in terms of her speed and athleticism. Mm-hmm. And not because of her intelligence in the game or how she approaches it strategically, as some oh, yeah. of our white teammates do. And, yeah. you know, pointing out sort of that same subtle difference. It's like you're talking about Crystal Dawn, you're talking about her speed, her athleticism. That's a compliment in a way, but it's it's also the things you don't talk about because of the color of her skin that become important too. 100%. And, you know, I'm a football watching gal and you, you hear it on the football side. You're like, he's an athletic quarterback. Look at his speed, strength of his arm, blah, blah, blah. This guy is a cerebral quarterback. Look how he reads the defense. Look at the choices he's making. Right. And let me tell you what the d- difference is in between those. You know, the first guy was a black quarterback. This, the other guy was a white quarterback. That's to, exactly to your point. That's how they talk about it. Right. So let's talk about this in the context of your running and participation in Ironmans, you did your first half after having your first child, progressed from there to eventually completing five Ironman triathlons and marathons as well. What did you experience in that community relative to this topic? Um, or I should say this community. <laughs> yeah, this community. Well, it's funny, you know, in, in triathlon, um, you know, there's this, I mean, Austin is a big, small town, right? And when you put the triathlon community, you know, filter on top of that, it gets even, gets even smaller. Um, and, you know, we all do the same sorts of races and things like that. And, you know, when I participate in a race, you know, it's usually, you know, me, Chris Garlington, you know, Tammy, you know, we can actually count on our hands, like, you know, on one hand, like who, who's going to be there um, for, you know, whatever reason. Some, you know, if you look at some of the things like, you know, triathlon is a, is a very expensive sport between, you know, you know, bike costs or races, you know, to, to pay for an Ironman to go and all that kind of stuff. It's it, the, the, um, financial requirement to participate in that is pretty high. And, um, you know, you talk about sort of access to sports and how that translates across sort of the uh, socioeconomic scale, right? Um, So you have things like, you know, basketball or running or things like that, where it doesn't require a significant investment. You can leave your house, take your ball, go go to the hoop or run or things like that versus like triathlon. You know, you need a pool to swim in. That's why there's not that uh, not a whole lot of um, black African-American swimmers. We don't have access to pools to swim. Um, You know, it's not that we're not good at it or could be good at it or physically have something different that doesn't make us good at it. We just don't have access to pools, you know, Um, growing up typically. Uh, So, you know, it was always fun, funny, uh, you know, I would just get a chuckle out of it that we would go and. You know, some of you are like, okay, we'll look for you at the race. I'm like, I'll be the black girl running the triathlon. <laughs> Can't miss me. And everyone, you know, <laughs> laugh and there's like, it's true. You know, chances are if you wave at a black girl going by, 
it's probably going to be me. Um, you know, so it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's one of those things that I've just, my experience is growing up. I'm often one of the few people in the room who look like me. And oftentimes I'm the only person in the room that looks like me. And, you know, it's just something I've been accustomed over my lifetime. You know, I'm not scared of it. It doesn't worry me, but, you know, I do notice it. And, you know, it makes me wonder, you know, why is that? Why am I the only one here? What, where, where are the rest of the people who look like me and why aren't they here? Is it because they don't feel like doing it? Is there some other, you know, systemic reason why they're not here? You know, um, one of the things I love that you guys do is the whole, like the whole marathon kids, um, program. That's fantastic. That is sort of reaching, you know, a, a group of folks who maybe might not have, you know, known to utilize, you know, running as, you know, getting our level of fitness up and getting exposure and things like that. And I, I love that that's something that you guys do, but, and that's, that sort of challenging the system, you know, of not having access to, you know, organized groups or, or races or things like that, um, you know, for those folks. So, yeah. um, you know, when you see it, I see it and I'm like, okay, well, why is that? And, you know, and now it's like, what do I need? What do I need to be doing about it? Right. You know, acknowledging that there's something going on and then, you know, taking some action and sort of doing it. But Yeah. It's interesting. I shared this story with Alex actually after I talked to her, because it didn't really come to me until afterwards, but I was thinking about my own sport and running journey. And when I was in middle school, I went to a magnet school where I was white kid, smart white kid, bust into a black neighborhood and went to a academy, a you know, a school that was basically set up to help desegregate. Mm-hmm. And so we went in there and we had the white kids classes and we had and then separately from that were the black kids classes. There were mm-hmm. two different schools effectively under one roof in the Dallas area, which is a whole you know, problem in its own, uh, unto its own to talk about. But I remember in the school that I went to, we had a track program, but it was sprinting focused. And I remember when I was in seventh grade, my mom encouraged me to try out for the track program because I was a soccer player who was pretty aerobically fit. And she said, Hey, you know, you should go try out for the track team. You'd probably be good at it. And I was running a little bit with my dad at the time and stuff like that because he was training for marathons and and I was a quiet shy kid who was not comfortable in new environments much less new environments where I didn't see other people that looked like me and I chose not to go out for the track team because honestly all I saw on the track team were black athletes that were sprinters that didn't look like me mm-hmm. and and there's a lot of layers of issues that went into that thought, I admit fully, and a lot of them are on my own issues and biases. But but it's kind of the reverse of what you're talking about, which is effectively that, you know, I didn't go into that environment because I saw no one else that looked like me. And so if you're looking at a triathlon or a running event that are predominantly white and that, that you know, have all of the biases that go with that type of environment 
then no, it's not going to be inviting for someone of color to walk in and, and try it out. And so it was kind of a fascinating role reversal reflection for me that made me realize how hard it is for someone of color to walk into these environments and to participate just because they don't see anyone else that looks like them doing it. Absolutely. It's hard. It's hard to dream or uh, about a goal or it's hard to dream about something that you can't see. Right. This is why we say representation matters. Because exactly because of that point, it's hard to be like, how do I go in? I don't see, I don't see me there. I don't see me represented there. So that must not be a place for me. You know, this is why we talk about it's important to have, you know, minority leadership in your company, in politics and things like that, because in order to get the other people to, the rest of the black people to participate, we need to be able to see ourselves there in um, you know, in, in a proactive, effective manner, you know, and it's, and if you don't see anybody there, you're like, well, there must be a reason nobody's there. You know, it's not working. It doesn't work. They don't want us there. I mean, there's a right. list that you can come up with, right. Or, or I don't have the right qualifications to be there because otherwise somebody else would have been there before me. Right. So yeah, it's, it's very challenging. And that's why, yeah, representation matters. 100%. So I want to begin talking about really what we were trying to get to in this conversation, which is how everyone can be an ally to support the Black community, not only during this time, but for all time as we continue to tear down the both implicit and explicit forms of racism in this country. And I want to start by just asking a simple question that I've been really struggling to answer myself this past week especially, which is why the three words Black Lives Matter are so divisive and so, goodness, and just charge people up so much, especially white people. I don't understand it. And of course, you have all the standard responses from people that would be offended or get riled up about using those three words and and they say things like well it's all lives matter and and there's a litany of other things but i don't understand it can you help me with this what's yeah, going I mean, on that those words become so divisive i think it's it's such a i think it's uh you know and we've seen lots of like memes and pictures around things going around you know the one that struck me most recently was this uh you know, it gave it gave similar examples, but in other um, avenues. So when we do Breast Cancer Awareness Month, everybody's fine with saying that. And they're not saying, yeah, but what about colon cancer? Do you know how many people that actually killed? Or what about what about all these other kind? Nobody says that. Right. They're like, yes, we're 100 percent behind, you know, Breast Cancer Awareness Month. We get it. We're on board. And I, and I, and there's, you know, a myriad of other examples like that. Right. But I think the, why it's so incendiary is because the heart of that statement is about race. And I think it's, it's really hard for even good people, you know, good intended people who 
don't want to talk about race, not because they feel they're racist, um, but because they aren't being necessarily being anti-racist, right? It's this, um, you know, silence part, right? If you are, you know, silence is actually, you know, complicit to the existing structure, right? If you don't say anything. And so I think because it's race, because what, what happens when you have to start looking at, you know, ways that perhaps you have been racist, not intentionally, but because of what you have been taught over your entire life. Um, and then when you take a moment and you, you know, peek into that, you know, your history and you're like, oh, that might not have been good. Ooh, I didn't realize I was doing that. Then there is like shame involved with that, right? And it's not that you were trying to be racist, but you weren't necessarily being anti-racist. And so if you have to stop and sort of check yourself and look into your own, that's, that's hard work. That's painful work. That's shameful work. And so who wants to bring that up to the front to have to talk about that? Nobody. I mean, it's you know, not nobody, but I, I think in those moments, they don't want to say that because it shines a light on a particular area that they don't want to have to look at within themselves. Like there's this, you know, um, area that you're like, just, we just don't want to have to look at it. Don't want to have to deal with it because it's going to be hard work. So let's just broaden it to a place, to a safe place where all lives matter. That's a safe place. Right. It is uncomfortable and it's not easy. And I made the statement when I was talking to Alex on episode 182 that if you grew up white in this country, that basically there is no way because of the systemic issues, racism, the systematic forms of it that exist have existed going back to the 1600s in our country, there is no way as a white person that you can't have some implicit at least biases against people of color. And, and I believe that's absolutely true. And those can be the subtlest of things, like the comments you're talking about. Oh, you're so articulate, Dion a comment you would give someone like you, but not someone like me because of those subtle stereotypes and biases that might exist. It might be so subtle that you, that you aren't aware of it, but it's, it's just going to be there because of the foundation, the history of our country. And I got a lot of emails, by the way, not a lot, a few emails from, from white men. It's typically white men that get really offended by these things. And that, that uh, were very offended that I was calling them racist because I don't know them. And I don't, I don't, and I wouldn't intentionally, <laughs> um, you know, go at somebody like that and make assumptions right. about them either. But it is my belief that we all have something implicit in us. And it's not really about looking at others and saying, well, that person and that person, that person, it's about looking at ourselves first Saying, okay, well, let me dig into me and figure out what's going on for reasons that may not be explicit or or really maybe even a fault of your own, but that are just there because of our history. Right. I mean, no one's born a racist. Let's be clear. 
<laughs> you know, no one is born racist. This is why you see like the little kids like hanging out with each other. They don't have any at somewhere along the line. They are taught how they should feel about somebody who looks different than they do, lives in a different neighborhood than they do, has a different occupation than they do. All those things are taught and learned. And then it becomes ingrained in our, you know, we talk about the systemic, you know, issues in policies and our government, things like that. Well, you have the same kind of internal sort of systemic issues. You are, you know, brought up in a certain way or taught or your thought leaders or people who you, people who you love and respect, you know, who are teaching you these things. That becomes a, the fabric of how you make choices, of how you interpret the inputs of, of your life that come into you. You bounce it against this framework that you have spent, you know, that has, you have spent years developing, and then you make these choices. So then to have to say and look internally and be like, yes, I realized you were taught that two plus two is four, but actually two plus two equals five. Let's just say that, you know, that would throw your entire math, you know, life off kilter. And you would have to re-look at every single thing you do based on that now, right? And so now as we look at sort of, you know, these systemic injustices, you have to look internally first and fix your own framework. And that means there may be a lot of choices you made, a lot of experiences you had that were based on faulty framework. Now, we can sit here all day and point fingers at, you know, well, that person said this, and this is why my framework was bad, and blah, blah. And the point that I keep trying to come at you right now is like, look, you are where you are, but if you are taking the time right now to look at your framework and be like, you know what, this framework is flawed, regardless of how we got here, it's flawed. What can I do now to fix it so that I can then move forward through life with a different framework? Yes, new framework. And I think the thing to, for me to say that's important here too is that I'm trying to have these conversations without judgment in a sense that I want everybody to look, be able to look at themselves in a safe way and look in the mirror and kind of dig into these issues, figure out where these implicit biases lie, work to root them out, but do that without somebody saying, oh, you're just a bad person because you think that way. Because that's not, I don't think, what you're saying. That's not what I'm saying. It says we have, we have these things in, a, in us that we need to work through. And so this is, right now, this conversation is a judgment-free zone. It's like, okay, let's yeah. talk about it. Let's get it, op- it out in the open so that we can all openly start to work through it. And I think educating yourself looking in the mirror is where you got to start. It starts by asking some of these questions we've already talked about, but there are also resources that people can go to, to, to have their eyes opened, to see new frameworks, to gain new perspective. So what would you recommend there? Yeah, I think, um, you know, there have been many, um, you know, lists that are being generated and updated sort of daily on, you know, 
anti-racism, racism has, as it has been expressed historically in our nation or in our culture. Um, there is, you know, I, I, I'd have to, you know, I could probably send you a link, but we're, you know, still trying to sort of build this um, thing is this anti-racism work isn't new right now. Um, so there, so we do have lots of materials um, over the decades and decades of work that's been done um, to, to go back and research and understand sort of how we got to the places that we're at right now. Here are the kinds of things that you look for. Um, I, you know, maybe we'll go offline and I'll, and I'll find the big list of like, yeah, we'll share them certainly in the show notes. Um, but the, but the, you know, one of the benefits of sort of technology in these days and the, the, the social media platforms that are available, you have folks who are, um, offering, you know, videos and podcasts like this, where they're like, Hey, just give a listen in. Here's a different perspective. We have, you know, literally the library uh, at our fingertips now in the comfort of your own home, right? You don't have to even, you know, if you're worried about how it might look to uncle Joe or whatever, you know, cause you went down to the library and you're hanging out in the black history section, you don't have to worry about that, right? Like if that's a hurdle that is stopping you, you don't have to worry about that anymore. You, you just get, go online on your little computer and you can do your research in a judgment-free zone because you can just, you can make your zone that much smaller right now. If that's the first level that we need to get to before you're able to sort of take the next steps, you know, forward. Um, but I would just encourage, um, you know, de- definitely any hashtag with, you know, Black Lives Matter has a lot of materials that are available. Um, all the social media networks are being um, just infused with so much good information out there right now. It is, and it's a little bit, you know, I've heard some, from some of my friends are like, I feel like I'm drinking from a fire hose right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and here it is, whoosh, you know, um, yeah. welcome but, to 400 years of racism in this country. <laughs> right. At least. So, you know, pace yourself. Like we talk about, this is an endurance event. You know, don't try to sprint it out of the gate and you're going to, you know, you're going to lose your momentum and your ability to keep going. So, you know, this is one of those things. If you can, and we talk about changing your framework. Okay. So what if you change your framework and you're like, okay, each morning I'm going to get up and I'm going to read one article or I'm going to start with this, you know, in my reading uh, repertoire, I'm going to read one book on anti-racism and then I'm going to read my fiction mystery novel or, you know. Hmm. Start small, start the changes small, start with educating, you know, yourself and t- t- you don't have to eat the whole elephant in one bite, you know, yep. just start with some little bites and just keep going. Yeah. I found a pretty good link today researching that, that gives you curriculum that you can, that you can follow based on how much time you have to invest. So it has a 10 minute a day kind of plan a 25 minute a day a 40 minute a day plan and so you can pick your 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 track based on how much time you want to invest and and so i'll share that in the show notes as one way to step into it and you may start with 10 minutes a day and that's a good place to start and and hopefully go from there you've used the word anti-racism several times and i think that's an important distinction to the phrase i'm not racist so how would you articulate that distinction? I would articulate that distinction um, simply with one word. 
action. You are either doing something about racism or you are not. If you are doing something about racism, you are in the anti-racism camp. If you are not doing anything, you are in the racism camp. There's no silent middle space. There is no just stick your head in the sand, I don't see color space. In a, in a perfect world, if we were at net zero, different story. That's not where we're at. So if you are not actively, if you have not taken some sort of action or com- continuing to actively do something against racism, you are participating on the racism side. It's that simple. It's action. It's just simply just that action. And your action can look like many and the, and can look many different ways, right? It could be anything from speaking out, using your networks to ask questions, donating money, you know, joining a group, um, asking your uh, your employer, like, what things do we have in place for our diversity and inclusion? I mean, it can look like many things. Action can look like many things, but it is you actively participating to dismantle the systemic policies, nomenclature, you know, all of those elements, but it's just action. If you are educating yourself right now on anti-racism, that's action. You're, you're in the right, you're, you're on the right side of this thing, right? So if in doubt, just go back to the word action. What am I doing? If I'm not doing anything, then I'm not in the anti-racism camp. Yeah. And there's a good, another good podcast, which I'll link in the show notes as well that Brene Brown recently shared where she talks about this topic as well. We talked about educating ourselves as a step. What are some others? Give us a couple of other examples of things that we can do to be, to be an activist, to, to take action. Yeah. Um, you know, I think first, and, you know, we kind of touched on this before, but first I think you have to be prepared to do the internal work. Um, I read, I think it was maybe Marielle Sharper. She, she said something like, you know, understand that coming to terms with your own privilege will not be pretty or fun, you know, will not be a pretty or fun experience, but it is necessary to feel those feelings of guilt, of shame, of anger through the process. So you have to be prepared and willing to do the hard internal reflection. And again, you know, sort of judgment-free zone, don't beat yourself up, you know, don't beat yourself up about it, but recognize that it exists. You can recognize that this has existed within you without, you know, just beating yourself up over and over again, right? Just acknowledge, like, here's my privilege. Didn't really consider that before, but now I'm looking at it with a new framework. I understand that, you know, I have this privilege or I have made these biases or made these, you know, statements that I see now probably weren't in the best interest. Right. So, but, but be prepared to do the work. It's not going to be easy. There are going to be some painful moments, 
there are going to be some times where you're like, dang, man, that was not my best foot forward. You know, not a good look, D, not a good look, you know, um, be prepared to sort of do that. Um, I think, you know, being an ally, you need to, you know, check your ego at the door. You know, if, when you're talking about doing action for Black Lives Matter or for anti-racism, you know, as, a, as an ally, you know, this isn't about you right now, right? While you may want to try to like, okay, I'm trying to find a way to connect. I'm going to, you know, empathize, which is important to empathize. But by, when you like try start inserting sort of your own personal experience into this particular narrative, it doesn't really help. Now is not the time, right? Like keep your eye on the, yes, but what is the topic at hand right now? The topic at hand right now is Black Lives Matter. I mean, that's probably the distinction between Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter, right? You're, of course, All Lives Matter. We're not saying All Lives don't matter. But what we're saying is right now, the focus needs to be here on the Black Lives Matter. Not well, that right. <laughs> matter, but this is where the focus needs to be. So you kind of need to, you know, sort of check your own ego with, with that and sort of be like, okay, this is the focus, you know, don't be, you know, a conversational narcissist and be like, oh yeah, well my, daughter. you're like, no, 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 just, just focus <laughs> on this piece of it right now. Yeah. And I think in, in terms of actions, also holding your networks accountable. So once you kind of do your internal work and you're like, okay, these are the kinds of things that I'm going to change, um, you start to sort of expand. You know, the um, Sean Acor, who writes a wonderful book called The Happiness Advantage, doesn't have anything to do with racism, but more just sort of personal work. He talks about this notion of a Zorro circle. So when Zorro, you know, with the blade, um, was practicing, he practiced in a really small circle to start like wielding his sword and getting really good at that. Then when he was good, he expanded the circle out and he's like, okay, now we're going to go a little bit farther. So kind of similar um, process in your own self is like, okay, focus inside. Let me get my framework right going on here. Let me recognize where my privileges are. Let me recognize what my superpowers are, what things I have that I may be able to utilize for this movement. And then you're like, okay, now I'm doing my thing part and then expand that circle out and say, okay, these are the organizations that I uh, work with or work for. What are they doing? Where's their position in this? You know, I had to make some, you know, I had to make some calls to some of the organizations that I participate with. And I'm like, hey, leadership, I haven't heard from you on this topic. You have members of your organization who are, you know, in pain right now. We have people that we serve um, as an organization who are in pain right now. Quiet is not an option. Not saying anything is not an option. And for me, in that moment, I, you know, was having some hard talks with myself. I was like, look, if these guys aren't going to be on board and showing up as anti-racist, I'm not going to participate here anymore. because. I, that's, that's not the space that I want to be. So you have to sort of look towards your networks and hold them accountable. Your schools, you know, what are we doing at school? Your employer, your faith group, your friends, your family, you know, how are we, you know, at, at work, how are we helping, you know, our black colleagues, our black members, our black friends, what resources have we offered, you know, to them, or are we providing, how are we identifying 
you know, our own systemic biases in our organization or our groups? And, and what are we doing to remove those, you know? And how are we helping, how are we helping our non-Black colleagues or members or friends become allies? How are we helping them recognize their privilege? And how are we assisting them in unlearning the racism that they've been taught, you know, and how are we holding them accountable? You know, so, you know, you you do the internal work and then you take the next step out and you, you know, you look to the side, who's standing next to you or who are you standing next to and be like, okay, how's it going for you? Where are you in this process? You know, can I help? Have you started? Why haven't you started? Let's talk about getting started, you know? Um, So doing that. So I think if we, you know, if we each can do the internal work and then reach out and bring somebody else along on this process, then that's how we leverage the work. That's how we leverage the work because not everybody is going to have the confidence, the strength, um, the, you know, ability to sort of put down the fear of the unknown and embrace kind of having to learn something new. They may not have the, you know, ability or the skill set to take that next step. They might need your help, you know? So you can, you know, a lot of times I say, you know, lifting as we climb. If you're climbing up this ladder, reach back and pull the next person up with you. If we all did that, then everybody moves. Then everybody moves. Yes. A lot to unpack there, Dion, but I was just letting you preach. So... Um, that was good, good stuff there. But one of the things I wanted to relate to my own journey in this is, is that after I talked to Alex on the podcast before, and she made me more aware of the fear that she has every time she goes out for a run to the point where she's literally having her Garmin tracking device on at all times with people aware of the fact that she's going out out of Mm -hmm. safety reasons. And, And I told her that, look, I can count on one two fingers, literally the number of runs in my life where I've worried about my safety. Mm -hmm. But I went after that conversation with her, I went out for a walk. It was a long homeschool day here before (laughs) uh, pre end of school. And after that conversation and really before the George Floyd death even happened and it was nine 30 at night. It'd been a long day. I had homeschooling and then I was working and I was just one, had one of those days as an introvert where I just needed to get out of the house because I'd been here all day. And so I, I just got out of the house at nine 30 and went for a walk around the neighborhood because I just needed to escape my children. If I'm being completely honest and have some alone time, no judgment here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so I did that. And of course, without thinking about it, I just walked out my front door and just started walking around the neighborhood. And 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 it hit me pretty quickly after I saw the first person I saw, you know, around the corner from me as I was making a little loop in the neighborhood, saw somebody out with their dog and and you know, here I am, just walking by myself and they gave me a big wave and smiled and they're like, Hey, you know, we exchanged pleasantries and I kept going. And right after that, it just hit me that, that if I was a black man, mm-hmm. then that would have been a very different interaction. Mm-hmm. And so the rest of the walk, and I went for probably a mile and a half around the neighborhood and then came back to my house. That's all I could think about was how, if I was a black man who wanted to do the same, escape my house at 930 because I'd been 
struggling all day, then it wouldn't have been possible. People wouldn't have been friendly. Most likely people maybe maybe would have called the cops. Mm-hmm. And and that wouldn't either it wouldn't have been possible so that black man wouldn't have done it or if had they tried it would have been interrupted in some way where they would have been so uncomfortable the entire time that they wouldn't have been able to have it as an escape mm-hmm. and it ended up not being really escape for me because i was digging into those feelings of the kind of guilt and shame that comes with that recognition of that privilege but partway through the walk i just sat down on a bench that i saw in front of a school nearby and just kind of swam in those feelings and i'd had a friend tell me that you know when you're feeling those things just swim in them Mm -hmm. because that leads to action if you allow that to instead of burying them or trying to avoid them just swim in those feelings because that leads to action and so so i think that experience is one example of a time where it kind of then bubbled up things in me where suddenly you can't not act Mm-hmm. you know and again not comfortable and in that moment wasn't even something i was really trying to dig into but because i had opened the door for that conversation with my conversation with alex it came to me and then i just didn't avoid it so wanted to relate that experience only to tell people that yes it's not easy and yes <laughs> you're going to have to swim into you're going to have to swim in those emotions but do it you know, just linger there, marinate, let it marinate because it will create value and values in you that will eventually push you to that place where you're like, well, now I can't not do something. I have to do something because I feel some tiny fraction of what you might feel. So that's one point there. The second point about kind of holding other organizations accountable and other groups accountable, you know, I think about the running community naturally in in those conversations and as a business we're thinking about these questions and and partially i get back to this place of it feeling like a little bit of a catch 22 and so how do we get past the point of that in a sense that until we can encourage you know more black involvement in this community then others won't want to participate until we can get to that point so but and 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 i recognize that that's probably a silly argument that many will use to not take action and i'm not using it in that way but i just relate that point because i want to ask you what can we do you know as a running community to make it more open and inclusive that's a great question um you know i think and and it's kind of goes back to do do the inventory of your superpowers, right? And then figure out, okay, what do I have in my toolkit as a person, as an organization that we can support this, um, you know, we can support this effort, these actions. You know, I think, you know, you're already doing some of that by having these podcast conversations. You know, you have a great uh, reach in your audience there, um, you know, will be people who listen today and hear your story, you know, and say, oh, you, you're right, you know, hadn't thought about like that and sort of beginning to set the people on their own path, you know, so you think about um, utilizing your 
just networks in terms of education and awareness. And I think you guys are doing a great job with that. Um, c- continue your work with um, Marathon Kids. I think that's a great program. Um, and you guys take it into our, you know, our Title I schools where we, you know, have a lot of our minority folks there and exposing them to opportunities of uh, running and fitness and health and what those things kind of look like long term and using that platform, um, I think is great. And and you're bringing kids to, together where they're like, oh, hey, there are more folks that look like me who are running. Cool. You know, and, and that's, you know, sort of start the groundswell with that. Um, you know, it, I, I think using, um, you, you know, you guys do races. So, you know, running races or running events, you can use those as um, sponsorship opportunities or, for, or financial uh, ways to raise money for, to give to these other nonprofits who are, you know, providing legal counseling for, you know, whatever, or things like that. You can, so you can use um, that organization to raise funds and financially support um, Black Lives Matter in, in a way or shape or form. Yep. Uh, you know, uh, so it's, it's not necessarily that we're asking people to uh, necessarily go out and like create, you know, a, a new skill set. I mean, that would be great down the road, but I guarantee you the stuff that you have right now that you have access to the people, you know, your networks, um, the ability to bring people together, um, the ability to bring people together to pay for things and raise money for other things. You already have these tools in your system that you can just say, okay, now let's just use this as our engine. And how do we, you know, take this and use it to drive these other elements, you know, awareness, education, funding, um, you know, representation matters. How do we, how do we continue to, to encourage, you know, our black folks that running the Austin running community is a great place um, for them to be, you know? Yeah. One of the things I've been reflecting on is the hurdles of walking into the rogue door. And now we can't do that obviously because of the pandemic, but, uh, but stepping into our community, it's a powerful one once you're in it, but it's intimidating when you're not in it for many. Mm -hmm. And that can come in a lot of forms comes in the form of that new runner who is just building their miles and trying to figure all of this out. And they see these you know, people over there that have got it all figured out with all of their gear and everything else and their distance already amped up. And they're, they're afraid to walk in the door because they think, oh, I'm not, I'm not good enough to go into that space. Mm-hmm. And that first step is always, for them, many of them, the hardest. And so you have those intimidation factors already in play for somebody who's outside of our community. And I think about the same now amping that up a note for those that would be in that position that are, you know, a, that are, are, are of color, whether they be from the black community or another community, and they see this environment. And not only are they intimidated because they're new to running, but they're also intimidated because they don't see others that might look like them as many, you know, or as many in our community. And so I also ask myself, okay, well, what can we do to try to make that an easier step? And recognizing that it's a harder step for someone who might be from the black community than it is from anybody, you know, for anybody else. So how can we make it feel as easy as possible? 
Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I have, you know, I, I love Rogue and have been involved with you guys for a long, long time. And, you know, one of the things that I loved is or love that you guys have these smaller groups, right? You have a couch to 5K, you've got gin and tonics, you've got, you know, Team Rogue, you've got Larry's Lightning's group down south, you've got all these sort of little subgroups, which I think make coming into Rogue a little easier, right? Because you're, you're, you're not stepping into Saturday long run and you're standing there and you don't know anybody, right? So you, you have these other sm smaller groups that are great. And so that's sort of your like little entree. And then, um, and then Saturday comes, you know, and now if you have your small group, then you're like, okay, well, we're going to meet over in this corner. So at least they have like a familiar place to go. You know, one of the things that, that I used to love that you guys do that you don't do anymore, but I loved like the little team t-shirts, like, you know, um, we had, uh, you know, camp punishment when we were, when I was training with, um, Panther, you know, <laughs> and it was fun to see. It's like when, when you wear team kits like that, well, team rogue does it too, but when you wear team kits or some sort of thing, it helps you identify with the other people. Right. And it gives you this automatic sense of belonging. Like we're in the same gear. We got the same uniform on, we got the same team shirt on. We are a team. Now I already feel part of the group because I have matching to at least these five other people or whatever. Yep. And, um, you know, so now you have an instant sort of bond and you are, you have this instant sort of, uh, projection of, I belong, I belong. This is my team. Here they are, you know? And I, I loved when we had those, I understand, you know, I know it's a little bit harder, but it's just, you know, financial sorts of thing, but that was just a really great way to, you know, to feel a part of the group. This is why, you know, I buy rogue running shirts all the time because I love running in those things and you're running downtown and, or wherever. And somebody sees it like, Hey, you know, you get the friendly rogue wave because we're wearing the same team shirt, same you know, gear. Yep. It's the same thing. Like, have you ever watched like got you know people in jeeps when they drive? They always, <laughs> you know, um, uh, motorcycle guys or people do the same thing. When they can see their connection with one another, then they are like, "Hey, yep, we uh, here's where we're, here's the intersection where we meet. You're cool. I'm cool. Awesome. We love that." You know, and so. You know, that's a way to sort of how do you make them feel a part of the group? Sometimes it's easy. Seriously, it's easy as a freaking T-shirt. You know, I mean, it's mm -hmm. a small, but it's a it's a visual indicator. You belong. You know, when we we used to sign up for a rogue program and they're, you know, the first thing you got was your T-shirt. You're like, yeah, hey, I belong to this group. Look, I got my rogue shirt. I'm <laughs> you know, yeah, yep. Yeah, it's an easy way to suddenly feel like you're part of the group without knowing all the rules yet or the you know knowing all the ways yet. So let's talk about some of the organizations people can support. Obviously Black Lives Matter is an organization unto itself, but then you have a lot of other organizations that are supporting, you know, causes within the bigger cause. So what are the ones that maybe you would raise up and elevate for for some to consider supporting? Yeah, I think, you know, and I, I go back to 
um, you, you need to find ways that feel authentic to you. So for instance, I have, you know, friends who are in the legal system. So they are going to gravitate towards um, helping out some of these justice leagues or that are, you know, ACLU, places like that who are specifically focused on, you know, supporting, uh, you know, people in their, in their legal efforts, right? So if, if, if that's kind of your area that is of interest to you, go there. Um, if you, um, you know, this, so this is why I sort of hesitate to say, because I would really prefer, you know, that individuals sort of really think through what are the things that move me personally? And then what are the organizations that fit with that? You know, because you could do the Black Lives Matter. There are people who who are like, I love to march. I'm going to show up at all of these things. And then there are people who are like, I am going to do podcasts. And there are people who are like, I'm just going to raise money. The, the thing about this, this particular time that is important, I feel, is that we emphasize that it can't just be right now when emotions are high and, you know, it's in the news every day and, you know, it's a hot spot right now. The only way we don't come back to this same point again is by taking longer term approaches, a longer term um, structural systematic change that is going to be longer lasting. And the only way we do that is by finding ways that are authentic to ourselves. What's going to be important for me might be what what resonates differently with you. Um, and so you know, I was sort of, I'm throwing it back to you and not sort of mentioning yeah. in particular, but that is kind of the work that I would like to see people doing is, you know, what is my particular role in this movement? You know, and it's, we want it to be a movement, not a moment, right? So what will be my particular role in this movement? And when it is something that is near and dear to your heart, that you're interested in, that resonates with you, that's how you sustain it over time. I mean, we can all white knuckle a sprint, you know, we can, we can do the 5k, we can do it. It's going to hurt in the moment, but then we can be done. We're like, yeah, it's done. But in order to do the marathon, you have to have sort of the longer term investment, um, the longer term drive to sort of keep going, keep going you know? And so you do that because you have some internal element that is like, I, this is, I'm in for the long game and here is why. Um, and so I, I, the work I want everyone to do is to, to do the internal reflection, recognize where you have privilege, recognize where you have superpowers and recognize where you have interests. Okay. And the, you, the, where those places overlap, those those are the organizations. Those are the areas that you need to focus your efforts on because that's where it's going to be sustainable long term change. That's great advice, and I will again link to some resources in the show notes where you can figure out about some of these different causes that you can dig into. Because I think you're right. You want to you want to put your energy where you, you're going to want to keep putting your energy. Right. Let's talk about the protests for a second, because. It's a daily occurrence now in major cities all across this country, going on 10, 11, 12 days at this point. 
Hmm. And which is a good thing. You know, it feels substantial. We're not, nobody's letting this conversation fall away. But there's also a lot of noise about it and people tend to, you know, that want to discredit the message, tend to point to the looting, the fires, the the negative things that might come out of these protests at the detriment of the message. What would you say to those that focus on that? Yeah, I mean, I think a couple things, right? It's, you know, we we, we continue to hear the, the quote, you know, riots are the voice of the unheard, right? Um, you know, as a, as a parent, you can probably relate to this, when your kid, you know, is just feeling at their wits end, they don't know what else to do, they throw this humongous temper tantrum, right? And it really is just a cry to be heard. They're like, I am hurting. I need you to hear me. And so I am going to throw a fit, right? And so kind of that's what this this riot, you know, feeling is about is they're like, we have, we have tried peacefully protesting. We have tried these other things. We have tried these various messages, uh, methods. And still no one is listening. So now we're going to scream a little bit and we're, we're going to have this moment. I certainly do not condone any sort of violence or anything like that. But I, I understand where the anger has bubbled over and is expressing itself in this manner. Don't condone it, but I understand how it's coming out. And so for those people who want to just focus on they're like, yes, well, they're destroying their own buildings or, you know, things like that. Like you are looking at, you're focusing on the behavior and not the root cause of the behavior. You have to peel back the layer and be like, why, uh, why has it gotten to this point where they feel like this is the only choice of action, you know, and unlayer that, you know, would we have loved to be able to just, you know, when Colin was kneeling and people would be like, oh, I get it. Let's do police reform. That would have been awesome. Mm-hmm. But it didn't happen because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't enough to, you know, get people's attention. Well, well, actually, in that moment, remember, they turned it into they didn't even listen to the message. They turned it about the flag. Right. So now it's not right. you're never, again. You're missing the point. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like we, it's easier. And it, and it's easier for people um, who are are using this moment to talk about the the violence or the looting or things like that, because it's easier to talk about that than to talk about why they're writing, right? It's easier to talk about that than to say we have a race problem, because as we started at the top of the, this discussion, it's a hard topic. It's hard to look at. It's hard to look at your role in it. It's hard to, you know, have those feelings. It's hard. The easier thing is to talk about this other thing. So let's talk about this other thing. I think it's also important to point out that in some cases that you have white supremacist groups coming in to cause trouble, start fires, break things, and then run away to try to discredit the message as well from those who would peacefully protest. 
Right. Because they know if they can draw more, you know, draw more attention to the leaves, no one's going to go look at the root of the tree. They're just going to look at the, you know, at the leaves. And, and the root, the roots are going to continue to flourish and grow and build a stronger tree, which is what they, you know, are wanting. They're like, no, 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 we want these systems to stay the way they are because they are, you know, serving us in the way that we want. So we need the roots to stay strong. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Go look at these leaves over here. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Let's maybe trim those leaves off, blah, 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 blah. Pay no attention to the roots. Hmm. Yes. And that... That again is hard. It's hard. I think it can be hard for some to see that happening, buildings burning, looting happening, and not stay laser focused on the main important message here. Because that to me in all of this is just it's 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 noise. It's 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 understandable noise, but it's noise relative to this central message, which is that Black Lives Matter, we need to to dismantle systemic racism in this country and it's going to take action and maybe some property damage to do so mm-hmm. but yes we don't completely don't condone violence reiterate that again no one's condoning violence no one is saying that that's okay we, it's been an hour and 15 minutes i really appreciate the conversation so we need to to bring this conversation to a close and and the way I'd like to do that is to end on a hopefully hopeful note. But but first, just thank you for taking the time and and for helping open all of our eyes on this very important topic. So I appreciate that personally very much. Uh, but but I want to talk about the hopeful part of this. It, it does feel like this this shift in the, the both the depth and the breadth of how this conversation is happening right now feels different. Mm. And obviously we can't stop here. We've got to keep going. This is a, a, a marathon, not a sprint to, to work through these issues, but it does feel different. How are you feeling around that point? Yes, I, I am encouraged. I mean, I have, I have been, on the phone, having conversations, you know, with folks or, or Zoom calls or things like that, more in the last two weeks, you know, two to three weeks on this topic than I have been probably in my entire lifetime. And I am, I am wholeheartedly encouraged by, you know, people really wanting to understand and to recognize and to do the work. I feel that, I feel like there's, there's this large group who perhaps in the past were in that silent camp, right. Who are like, who would tell you I'm, I'm not racist, you know, I'm not racist, but they're not doing anything to prevent racism. Right. And so I feel like there's this big group in the middle, um, who we can have as allies on the anti-racism side who are now sort of the scales are lifted from their eyes, you know, they're doing this reflection, they're educating themselves, you know, they're empathizing with the, the cause and they are willing, they are ready and willing to do it differently now. 
you know, and that's, that's all we're really asking. And I'm, and we're, we're seeing that like, you know, these podcasts are coming up, we're getting all of you guys to be allies, to come and sort of help us continue to move strong. And that's very encouraging. I don't recall ever feeling this before for, for whatever reason. Right. And so uh, on that side, it is, um, it's, it's very encouraging, you know, and that's, I think that's why it feels different is because the conversations are different. The people participating in the conversations are different. We are, we do have allies. You look at the marches. It's not just the black people marching. There's, you know, white people marching along beside us. We're like, awesome. Welcome. Thank you for being here with us and, you know, lining up at the starting line next to us, you know, and be like, yeah, we're going to do this race together. We are going to figure this out together. I'm here for you. I understand that, you know, you need some assistance in dismantling this. I'm here for you. The system was built, you know, the system was built by white people to hold black people down, right? I mean, that's sort of the the basic of it all. Black people can't undo the white system without white people helping us. We can't, you know, it wasn't a black person who got black people the right to vote. Those are white legislators. You know, we, we need your and so I think it's very encouraging that there are people who are who are willing to take action and actively be allies in this with us. So then final word, how do we make this, to use your words, a movement, not a moment? Four things. Educate, empathize, engage, and expect. You got to educate yourself, educate those around the empathize. This is the the moment that you were talking about, like, uh, you know, sit in those feelings, understand so that they can drive the change, engage, actively participate in some sort of action that is going to move this forward and expect the same from the people around you, from the organizations, your family, and, uh, you know, and all the groups that are around you expect and demand that they do the same. If they're not on board, then you need to go, you need to circle around and go, like, okay, we're going to have to get you educated so that you understand why we're doing this. You get, bring them into the circle, but educate, empathize, engage, and expect those things. I love it. That's a good final word. Thank you so much, Deanna. Really, really appreciate this conversation. And Thank you for all you're doing to help educate us as well as, of course, just being a part of our community. You're joining, you're in the Rogue She Squad right now. So we love that. But, um, but we really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for having me and thank you for doing this. I appreciate you. You're an ally. Go, Chris. <laughs> I'm doing my best. I promise. I, and that's all progress, not perfection. That's all we ask. So there you go. Dion Schaffner with the final word there. We're shooting for progress not perfection, as we all educate, empathize, engage, and expect. I love the way she laid that that out there at the end. Thanks again to Dion for joining me. I really appreciate her taking the time to open my eyes. Hopefully you all also learned something about how to be an ally. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter or Instagram or the Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time. We'll talk to you soon.